Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin on Capitol Hill, where yesterday congressional representatives from the Bay Area condemned the enduring trauma caused by the Trump administration's family separation policy, a policy that's drawn shock and anger since coming to light in 2018. KQED's Michelle Wiley reports. While questioning the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, San Mateo Congresswoman Jackie Speer called separating families, quote, harmful traumatic, and chaotic. She said federal officials knew forcible separations would traumatize children and had no plans to address the harm. So it was a a truly callous act uh, within the Department of Justice in not stepping in and providing uh, some kind of mitigation. Under Trump, border officials separated more than 5,000 children from their parents. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden established a task force to reunite hundreds of families who remain separated. For the California Report, I'm Michelle Wiley. The death toll from COVID-19 continues to rise in California. While the state has carefully tracked those statistics, what we're not measuring as well is the toll that the virus takes on people who survive it. A new study out this week suggests that long-term cognitive issues may be more common than we thought, especially in people who had mild COVID. KQED's April Domboski reports. It's been almost a year since he had COVID, and Bruce Wheeler is still struggling with lingering symptoms, like the headaches. It would just feel like there's a knife in my temple, you know, just burning. And not just once in a while every day for the last seven months. I can get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and by 9.30 or 10, I'm back in bed because my head is pounding. And he gets really tired. He used to hike in the Alps and now can barely make it up the stairs in his house. I'm huffing and puffing at the top. But the thing that really bothers him is what people are calling brain fog. He gets disoriented, he can't focus, and he forgets things. And not just once in a while, multiple times every day. I'll... I'll go into the kitchen wanting to get something out of the refrigerator and and I forget what I'm there for. Or he'll watch a movie with his wife and the next morning can't remember what he saw. Even in the moment he's staring at Russell Crowe on screen, he can't remember his name. And and then there's another Australian actress that's in every movie. Do you remember who's the most do you know the most popular Australian actress? Nicole Kidman. And Nicole Kidman. Whenever I see them or think of them, I just have a gap. I can't come up with their names. These kinds of persistent cognitive problems have so far been documented mainly among older people who had to be hospitalized for severe COVID. But Bruce Wheeler was never in the hospital. A new study from UCSF suggests brain fog may be more common among patients who had mild COVID and rode their illness out at home. And we looked at the demographics of these individuals. They were overwhelmingly young. You know, they were in their late 30s as an average age. Neurologist and study author Joanna Helmuth says that's a problem because most tools used to screen for cognitive issues were designed to detect the most serious conditions. It's either dementia or it's nothing. There's really no in between. And these more subtle cognitive disorders really aren't recognized as much in the medical field. Scientists aren't sure what causes COVID-related brain fog, and so they're not sure how to treat it, let alone diagnose it properly. Helmuth thinks this could have long-term economic impacts. There are a lot of working people 
who had COVID who aren't able to do their jobs like they used to. Bruce Wheeler has had to step back from volunteer work he does for local museums and nonprofits. He says the hardest part is the emotional toll it takes, the stress and guilt of forgetting. I, I would say six months ago, it really got me down. And, and now I kind of accept it in myself. I don't get down on myself as much as I did. Being able to make light of it at times, have a laugh with family or friends about, I mean, come on, Bruce, <laughs> try harder, you know? Who is that Australian actress? Like, I can't, I can never get her name. And I, right now, no, I can't remember it. And you gave it to me, what, five minutes ago? Uh, Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman, damn. Bruce believes he's going to get better, but doctors don't know. They can't tell him or any of their patients when or if their symptoms might go away. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. Turning to our state's housing crisis now, the city of Berkeley was the first in the country to adopt single-family zoning. Those are rules that restrict housing development to one home per lot. And that was back in 1916. Now, as KQED's Aaron Baldessari explains, it's one of a handful of California cities considering upending those rules. In certain parts of Berkeley, you'll find plenty of pricey homes. But what you won't see are apartment buildings. And that's by design. Vice Mayor Lori Drost represents the Elmwood neighborhood, where single-family zoning first began. It started out as explicit racist policies to keep Chinese laundromats and African-American dance halls out of Berkeley. And then later it morphed into redlining. Droz says the result is homes priced way out of reach for working class families. So she plans to introduce a proposal to allow fourplexes throughout the city. Undoubtedly, a home in a duplex is going to be less expensive for an individual than in a single-family home, right? So relatively speaking, it absolutely is more affordable. Well, affordable for who? That's Edith Boone, a longtime community activist who has seen many of her Black neighbors leave Berkeley due to rising costs. When you use the word affordable, it's not the same thing as low income. That's never clear. And then you really find out that it's not affordable for low-income people. Droz says details of the plan are still being worked out, but she expects the city council could take up the legislation by late February or early March. That was KQED's Aaron Baldessari. Well, recent labor laws are revealing some glaring inequities in the state's arts sector, as small arts groups struggle to comply with the new rules while coping with the fallout from the pandemic. KQED's Chloe Veltman reports. The arts sector has long relied on a freelance workforce, so it's been challenging for small nonprofits in California to adapt to AB5, the labour law that's meant to give workers more benefits by preventing employers from misclassifying them as contractors in order to save money. <laughs> Nevertheless, San Jose Taiko Executive Director Wisa Uemura says she welcomes the shift. I like the idea that we're being held more accountable and we have to be more careful. But converting a contractor to an employee increases payroll costs by about 30 percent, according to a new research report about the California arts sector and labor laws. And that's devastating for some of the state's roughly 2,000 small performing arts groups, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic has decimated their already meager bottom lines. And it is a point of crisis. 
That's Martha Demson. She's the producing artistic director of Open Fist Theatre Company in Los Angeles. After AB5 became law, Demson says she couldn't afford to put artists she used to hire as freelancers on payroll. So instead, she made them volunteers. A long-time volunteer herself, the director says it was a desperate act of survival and hopefully temporary. The idea that you would be an all-volunteer organisation smacks of privilege. How many people can give their time for no compensation? Brenna Salmon says she certainly can't. Salmon is an up-and-coming musical theatre artist in the San Francisco Bay Area. She used to get paid as a freelance contractor for her musical theatre work. But since AB5, Salmon says potential employers have only been able to offer expenses. Just because of that, I wasn't able to even audition. Financially, it didn't make sense. Salmon has a day job which affords her some financial stability, but she says she knows many early career performers who've had to leave California since the small companies that once provided paid professional opportunities are now asking artists to work for expenses or less. I think it really creates a lot of inequity because there are so many people that just can't afford to do shows for free. For some organisations, turning contractors into volunteers is simply unthinkable. Ophelia's Jump is a theatre group near the San Gabriel Mountains that focuses on underrepresented voices and narratives. Co-founder Beatrice Casagran says asking artists to volunteer their time would undermine the company's diversity-focused mission. Because I think that message is exactly the wrong message. To meet payroll costs, Casagrande had to drastically scale back operations and would like to see the state's labour laws change so small companies like Ophelia's Jump have more flexibility. Finding something that would allow us to pay artists on a fee-based contract rather than as hourly workers would be the way to go. Pushback from parts of the creative sector has led to a law that now allows some arts workers to freelance. But Lorena Gonzalez, the San Diego assemblywoman who introduced AB5, is wary of exempting more employers from compensating workers properly. There is a need to professionalize the arts in a way that people can make a real living off of it. And we've got to come to terms with ways in which that can be done. But a fundamental shift is needed to solve the equity issues that have long kept careers in the creative industries out of reach for those who can't afford to work for very little or for free. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltzman. As we reported here yesterday, a federal judge is considering making utility PG&E factor in whether potentially dangerous trees are near power lines when it considers cutting power to prevent new fires. This as PG&E is suspected of causing last year's deadly Zog fire in Shasta County. At the time, the utility had turned off power in parts of several counties, but not to the place where that fire began. Energy expert Steve Weissman has been looking into how incentives allowed by California regulators may have made the grid more vulnerable in rural places where California's wildfires start. I spoke with him earlier. In California, Right now, Pacific Gas and Electric Company is allowed to, to collect money in its rates to use uh, for bonuses uh, that are given to employees if the uh, company is able to achieve a certain score related to the overall reliability of the grid. And why is that a problem, potentially? The challenge is that almost any kind of financial incentive could have unintended consequences. And if, if you don't take those potential consequences into account when you set up a, a new incentive payment system, then what you might do is actually uh, produce some very unfavorable results later. So 
How have some of those incentives created problems when when you compare high density urban areas that PG&E serves versus rural places? Reliability means that when you go to flip the light switch, the lights come on. And so the way you measure reliability is by figuring out how much of the time, on average, customers are without power. Well, the challenge when you're trying to also worry about the safety of the system out in rural areas is that you get better results and better scores in terms of reliability if you focus on dense urban areas. PG&E had every incentive to put more of its attention into keeping things working well in urban areas, and that could have been at the expense of the reliability of the system, the safety of the system out in the rural areas. So finally, Steve, when it comes to these incentives that are now such a part of the way regulators oversee utilities in California, what do you think are the lessons learned from the last few years? If the regulators want to rely on on incentives, payments of these types, uh, they're going to have to do a lot more homework up front to try to understand what the potential unintended consequences might be from putting that system in place. That was Steve Weissman, a lecturer at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy and a policy advisor at the Center for Sustainable Energy. Now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's Weekly Magazine. This week, host Sasha Coca tells us about L.A.-based artist and filmmaker Colleen Smith, whose work explores the ideas of utopia and black joy. Smith's experimental film, Sojourner, features a group of women in brightly colored outfits gathering as the sun rises in Joshua Tree. They're tuning into a transistor radio to hear the words of black women activists from the past. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. Smith says her work is about helping audiences literally tune into that kind of wisdom. The actual manifestation of change has always been the work of women. And I just wanted it to be really visible that Black women have been imagining a better world and not only imagining it, but making it so. From the ashram in the Santa Monica Mountains, started by Alice Coltrane, to the folk art of the Watts Towers, Smith's work celebrates utopias, places built to foster generosity and tenderness, and dare we say it in these times, even joy. And that is the California Report for this Friday, February 5th. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Holly J. McDeed, and Alice Wolfley. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Vinny Tong is KQED's director of news. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, offering professional-grade financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary, personalcapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.